0: True Crime Reporter goes inside the Ella Crime Scene tape. I'm investigative reporter Robert Riggs with decorated former federal prosecutor Bill Johnston. You can follow our journey into darkness and get bonus episodes by joining our true crime community at truecrimereporter.com. Our true crime cases are stranger than fiction. With that said... Here's a classic police procedural. A true crime reporter, confidential. Be advised that this podcast is for a mature audience. Some episodes may contain profanity and graphic descriptions of violent crimes. Murder is not just a crime, it is a major public health problem. In 2017 alone, there were 464,000 recorded victims of homicide globally. That statistic opens the book, The Mind of a Murderer, by Dr. Richard Taylor. Dr. Taylor is a forensic psychiatrist. In this episode of True Crime Reporter Confidential, Dr. Taylor will help us explore the darkest reaches of the human mind. Hello, I'm investigative reporter Robert Riggs here with my co host, decorated former federal prosecutor Bill Johnston. Dr. Taylor joins us from London where he has dealt with well over 100 murder cases during his psychiatry career. Doctor, thank you for coming on. It's uh, great to have somebody like you that's got such in depth knowledge.
1: It's uh, great to be invited, a uh, real pleasure.
0: Well, let's just start for the audience. Tell us, what is your job as a forensic psychiatrist?
1: Well, um, I guess I have a what you might call a day job and then an expert witness job. so I work in a secure facility for men and women who've committed serious crimes who also suffer from a mental disorder. Uh, typically they're transferred from prison for evaluation and later treatment. Uh, we do send some back who we don't think are appropriate for treatment uh, and then alongside that, I work with Various aspects of special branch police in London. This is a rather unusual bit of my work, but I work with the royalty protection team uh, because there are a lot of uh, deluded, mostly deluded, mentally disordered individuals who send threatening communications to royal family and to uh, politicians. And then um, I do expert witness work, so that's evaluations for attorneys, um, uh, solicitors, lawyers, as we as we call them here. And this can be either defense or prosecution, but typically interviewing individuals in custody pre-trial uh, to look at uh, issues like insanity, diminished responsibility.
0: Well, we all remember the, the time the delusional guy got into Buckingham Palace, into the queen's bedroom. Uh, w- w- I'm fascinated you do this. What, what do you find is driving these, motivating these people?
1: Well, uh this is something I don't I didn't cover in the book, but uh it um generally speaking, uh, you know, the cases are filtered, so correspondence officers for uh various royal households and also prime minister politicians, they will screen correspondence and um, I mean the Queen receives fifty thousand letters in an average year. And uh the correspondence officers normally reply and um you know, a polite reply, Her Majesty, thanks you for your best wishes and wishes you well. Uh, But unfortunately, some people are writing in their own blood or uh, making threatening comments. And so those are filtered out. And we have a team of forensic psychiatrists, psychologists and and law enforcement officers and we screen, we evaluate the cases and typically about 85% of them are suffering from a psychotic illness, they have delusions that they're members of the royal family or they believe they're being threatened. Uh, or they believe that they're being targeted and they are seeking help from the royals. a combination of motivations, but generally it's psychotic.
2: How often do they act out? I would think it's quite rare, but uh, you screen them, obviously.
1: Yes. um, Roughly, I mean, a small small proportion of our cases are what we call approaches who actually turn up. Around 3%, less than 5% actually turn up. Uh, And some people turn up um, approach, as we call it, without having communicated. And so, in a way, they're a slightly different group. Um, and uh, the, I mean, interestingly, the, um, the research that underpinned this team was an international group, uh, including a, a very well known forensic psychologist from San Diego, uh, Professor Reed Malloy, who you may, may be familiar with. Um, he does a lot of work with the FBI, and he contributed to the um, evaluation and, uh, and setting up the team.
2: I think I think the the numbers that the Secret Service find are, in my to my knowledge, fairly similar to what you find. Thankfully, so many people it seems, uh, and this can go into our discussion about murder. So many people fantasize, ponder on, uh, maybe even plan in their minds something, but thankfully, so few do. Uh, what is it? with your expertise in psychiatry, what is it? What is that barrier? I don't know another term for it. What is that barrier that most people don't cross, but some do? Is it empathy? Is it, what is it that, uh, is that impediment to acting versus uh, pondering?
1: Gosh, that's a, that's a really difficult question. I mean, one of the key issues in threat assessment is, you know, who, who is just threatening and who is going to carry it out. Um, I think there are, you know, we we use a a rating scale called the CTAP, which has 25 items on it. And there are a combination of risk factors, for example, homicidal ideation, suicidal ideation, um, presence of mental disorder. And we have red flag risk factors. One is um, what we call last resort thinking. So somebody who says, you know, I'm at the end of my rope or I have nothing, you know, the only place I can go to is Your Majesty, and I've, you know, I've run out of all other options. That, That is associated with higher risk of approach. But this is a small part of my job. I actually only spend one day a week doing that. And um, the book is is about all the, the homicides I've assessed, which is, uh, as I say, for defence and prosecution, I just did a case, literally, I was in court yesterday giving uh, expert testimony in a, in, a, in a rather tragic case where a man with a psychotic illness uh, killed an elderly lady who had no connection with.
0: Well, I, I was interested, you know, in your book, you stated that London's Metropolitan Police solve around 90% of their murder cases compared to 60% here. I'm cur- what, are they do- what are they doing differently there? Or are your cases easier?
1: I think there are two things. One is, you know, you have high homicide rate principally because of the availability of uh, of of firearms. So, of the, I think it's about fourteen thousand homicides a year in the US, around ten thousand are uh, firearm related. So, we we only have thirty firearm uh, killings every year. Although, I mean, our population is about one sixth of the US, so you know you have to compare the figures. So, what one is just the increased rate in US cities, and then the other is that the metropolitan police they throw enormous resources at a murder case so uh, typically there will be dozens of uniformed officers preserving the crime scene they will take all the cctv in the vicinity i mean it can take 12 officers you know several weeks to run through all the cctv of you know shops cafes nearby um, they will use cell site analysis so you know we have really good coverage mobile phones and of course if you could take the time to, to run through the mo- the mobile phone company records you can see when a phone connects to the mast and that can locate an individual but the principally they they, they decide to throw huge resources you know dozens of offices um, which you know not every city is able to fund that
2: one of the big problems in we're in Texas uh, one of the big problems in Texas is that Most of it is very rural and the lack of expertise or experience, familiarity with homicides is substantial. And you may have an area that has a murder every six months, let's say, and the person working, I'm quoting, working the murder uh, may have never done one. Never and so, and you have a deputy sheriff, let's say, in a small area that doesn't know the first thing about preserving a crime scene, and I think it may have to do with the vastness of the territory, but it is a shame in many, many cases are uh, are ruined before they begin uh with that so I, and and again, our numbers are such, and the firearms, as you mentioned, play such a role, but at any rate what uh, fundamentally, I, I think your book is cool uh, because you do the thing that many people refuse to do, which is to wonder why. It's it's rather easy to categorize. Well, so and so is just mean, or they were just hateful, or they were jealous. Uh, to use a term that's easy to pick out. But um, why did you look into the why? Why do you, why is the why important?
1: Thank you. Well, I'm I'm obviously delighted that you read the book and uh thank you for thank you for those kind comments. Um I I think I mean there's a lot I could say in answer to that, but as a young psychiatrist, I came across a woman who had disposed of her little baby. And it was a tragic case. It was an unwanted child. She had uh it's a very, you know, distressing story, that she disposed of this baby down a garbage chute in a in a block of Block of flats in a housing project. And of course, but she reported the baby as missing, and the police thought this was an abduction, and they had dozens of officers searching and a big police operation. And eventually they found the child who obviously died, and they were left with the thought that if she told the truth, they might have been able to save the baby. And of course, it was really upsetting. But I, um, so I had to, I looked up the literature around homicide, and I found a, you know, I found some research literature, which described this the way that homicide is broken down into, you know, relationship between perpetrator and victim um, location, sex, uh, motivation. And, you know, to my surprise, there was a pretty familiar pattern every year in the UK. Um, and as I started doing my own murder cases, I, I saw that my cases fit into these subtypes. Um, you know, talk about a public health problem. It, it it's just its just really remarkable how, you know, I, every year in the UK, I can expect around 100 domestic violence homicides, typically men killing female partners. And that's repeated year on year. And so if you, if you um, understand the pattern, and then each case, obviously each case has to be looked at on its own merits, each case is individual. But, you know, men who kill female partners, there are very common themes that you see. Um, I mean, you mentioned jealousy, uh, often we get this catathymic rage, there's maybe substance abuse, previous domestic violence. And um, so, those types of cases are, you know, it's usually a rage of balling over in an argument, uh, whereas other types of homicide may be more predatory. But if you, if you break down the subtypes, then often the why you know, comes out. From looking at the the typical scenarios that we see again and again,
0: Bill and I worked a case of uh, a sadistic sexual serial killer named Kenneth McDuff. Probably worse than Bundy, you've never heard of him, and there's a number of reasons for that. But he had a reign of terror in Texas, and he there were there was corruption associated with how he got out of prison. He had been on death row, but walk me through the the hallmarks of that kind of, of killer for the, our audience.
1: Clearly, these cases are very rare. So it's a, a tiny percentage of homicides in, in most jurisdictions are sexually motivated, and then uh, serial sexually motivated homicides are, of course, even, even more rare, but they get huge attention. Uh, and these individuals typically have um, antisocial or the more severe end of the spectrum, psychopathic Uh, personality structures, Uh, they often have histories of uh, abnormal development, Um, typically experienced abuse, have early substance misuse. And um, often there is what you might call a pathway to sexual violence. So uh, this may start with uh, abnormal fantasies of sadistic sexual activities, it may then progress to paying prostitutes to act out these activities, and then that escalates to, you know, that rapes, forcible, um, forcible using force to, to enact their their um, sexual fantasies, and then that, that can escalate obviously to serious violence and then, and then homicidal violence. I mean, one one thing that's quite striking is what we call a fetish burglary. So this is where on that pathway, Typically, a young man. He may be having fantasies of sexual violence, and he will break in to the to a victim's apartment and uh, take underwear uh, items of clothing. So, when when we hear about um, what looks like a fetish burglary, then we and the police get 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 you know. Very increased concern because many sex killers have a history of that in the background. I can think of some really interesting cases
0: voyeurism and these type of things would be a a signal of what might come
1: in the future absolutely yes um, I dealt with a a man who was he was a computer software expert. I mean I should say that not all psychopaths have abnormal development i mean some the research has shown that some children unfortunately, demonstrate callous, unemotional traits very early on in life. And whether they become uh, somebody with psychopathic traits with an ordinary job, they may be quite manipulative in a corporate environment, or they may go down the route to more serious violence and sexual violence. But um, this man was a computer expert. And he had all kinds of uh, what we call paraphilic interests, um, lots of pornography viewing. He had fetishes about cigarettes, about shoes. And then he he encouraged his wife to engage in these with him. And then he hired sex workers to, um, to, to help him carry out his practices. And he gradually escalated and started fantasizing about a homicide. And one day on the way to work, instead of going to work, he went to a hardware store. He bought like a, a rape-murder kit, you know, duct tape, knife. Gloves, boots, and he um, made a booking with a prostitute. Went into the room, and more or less, she turned it back to him. And without any sexual activity taking place, he more or less decapitated her with, it, with the knife he bought from the hardware store. So, his he fantasized about the killing. It wasn't even a rape killing. It was like his sexual libidinous drive was was transformed into a, you know, a wish for homicide. Is there? Uh,
2: I mean, this in a therapeutic. <laughs> Query, is there anything you can do with someone like that? In other words, can treatment help someone like that? Or, and I will tell you my opinion is, uh, or do they just need to be kept from the rest of us?
1: Well, treatment for somebody with psychopathy, we could call it. I mean, we measure it, uh, the rating scale, the psychopathy checklist, uh, you know, uh, scores of. Uh, Elevated scores on that checklist. Um, typically over 27 out of 40 would be a high score. Individuals with those traits are really hard to treat. Uh, we set up a dangerous, severe personality disorder service in the UK, and it was disbanded because half of the guys, I say guys, men, typically, you know, men, men are perpetrating most of this violence. Um, half of them just refused to engage in the therapies. They just weren't weren't willing to do it. And of the ones that did engage, treatment was disappointing. So we moved that group back into prisons. And um, they're typically they're managed in, in prison custody. And for the most serious offences, I think in most jurisdictions we're looking at a whole life tariff, you know. We we, we have whole life uh, sentences in the UK, they're rarely used and obviously in the US um you you have those too. So yeah, the short answer is some of them I think will, will never be safe to release.
0: Well, back when I was doing the McDuff case, Roy Hazelwood, one of the original profilers at the FBI, I know you've cited him in your work, who is their expert on sexual homicides, he was telling me on looking at McDuff, like, Robert, when you when you get the the powerful urge of, the, of sex combined with severe violence, there's no going back. Yeah. You're not going to bring these people back. They're
1: permanent danger. They are. They are. Um, You know, I'm thinking of the case I did of a double homicide. This man had a history of escalating violence in his rapes, and he um, left prison. Uh, He was on a. We have a license system. He was a registered sex offender. He took up a relationship, um, and his girlfriend actually called him a rapist. uh, one day, taunting him. And so he, he couldn't take that. And, and he committed a horrible sexual homicide, rape and murder. And tragically, he sat there not knowing what to do with the body and a healthcare worker came around to visit his girlfriend and he let her in and he same thing to her, tied her up, raped her, stabbed her through the neck with a, with a bread knife. And he's he's got a whole life tariff. He ain't, you know He ain't going anywhere but when i interviewed him he was clearly enjoying telling me all the details of the the offenses um really really disturbing um, he clearly took they like to relive in, it in the offenses yes yes i mean i did a long interview with him and he was giving me great detail and he said doc you're going to have to come back i've got a lot to tell you about this you know uh, so yeah the, the, the sadism essentially i mean sexual sadists and psychopaths overlap Considerably, we do. You know, they are separated, but um, typically, if somebody is getting pleasure out of extreme, um sexual homicide—sorry, you know, extreme violence that ends in homicide, sexual violence—then clearly, that is very difficult to unpick.
0: For our listeners, give us the quick definition, layman's terms, of a psychopath.
1: Right. So this is an extreme, a more extreme subgroup than those with antisocial personality disorder. And this group have essentially, I mean, it, it's divided into factors, but they have uh, the antisocial traits, which would typically be impulsivity, substance misuse, a parasitic lifestyle, um, and then they have what we call a defective affect experience. That's a bit of a mouthful, but the um, this is traits like callousness, lack of empathy. Um, T- tendency to you know to, to be conning and manipulative and so th- these are these are traits that enable them sometimes to get close to their victim um you know if you're conning and manipulative and uh, uh you know you can get close to your victim and then maybe the antisocial side takes over
2: so i have a different blend for you that has always intrigued me and unfortunately intrigued me because i've worked on a number of cases involving Pastors or preachers or take that to the extreme cult leaders like David Koresh, uh, Vernon Howell was his real name, and I was unfortunate to have worked on that case, the so-called Branch Davidian case, and many uh, British citizens died in that during that time. Uh, In fact, uh, Manchester uh, conducted an inquest, and uh, we had a number of uh, uh, homicide investigators from Manchester that came. And worked with us. I wasn't uh, aware. To, of
1: that.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. But what, so getting away from sex for a moment, bl- blending religion, mm-hmm. uh, and again, I had a rather significant case and investigation that involved a, a Baptist preacher in Central Texas who murdered his wife and, and preached the next day.
1: Yes.
2: Can you, do you have any thoughts about that? The blending of, person in authority in a religious context with homicide it's a weird obviously a very bizarre combination but any thoughts
1: it is yeah um well i think we're, we're in the realm of narcissistic personality and uh you know these individuals have a you know elevated sense of uh, their self-worth um and they're charismatic again so if if they have psychopathic traits they are very good at bringing other people along, which is obviously a necessary, um, necessary prerequisite for a cult. And I think there's an overlap, we can see an overlap with, for example, with terrorist groups. And uh, you're probably aware from the book, I, I dealt with a, a radical hate preacher who was incredibly charming, charismatic, intelligent, you know, he was portrayed in the British press as a, as a sort of sort of monster, really. Um, but I met him. And, you know, he was, you, you couldn't have met a sweeter guy. But he inspired. Uh, he he. There were individuals who came to his sermons outside a mosque in North London, who uh, went on to become serious terrorists, including Robert Riggs, the shoe bomber, uh, had attended his sermons. And also, we had a horrible case where two men um, killed an off-duty uh, mili- military serviceman. They were waiting for him as he was heading home uh, from a military barracks. And again, they assaulted him with a meat cleaver, almost decapitated him. And one of those guys had attended had attended the, the sermons of this charismatic preacher. So I think I think uh, charisma, if I had to pick out one word, uh, they can get the followers to do anything. I mean, as you say, Waco, and uh, I'm thinking of that famous uh, the Kool-Aid. I've yes. forgotten the name. Jim Jones. In, in,
2: Jim Jones. Uh, Jim Jones. Jones. Jonestown. Jones yeah. I mean, it's yes.
1: extraordinary that you can get people to. To do
0: that, mm. and Bill's had a number of cases here where cults uh, around production of illicit methamphetamines that would even, well, they had a like a ceremony, right?
2: Yeah. Uh, again, I I I think you're right. I think a, a um, charismatic uh, leader, and then he has some other issues, so to speak, that you would categorize. Because, you know, the lack of empathy and so forth. But if I've, people have asked me, you know, why would someone join this cult or that cult? Uh, why would someone have been at the Branch Davidian compound and stayed there? And I, I this is a, uh, an answer that's not well thought out. But I have said, if you can convince someone, even to a small degree, that their eternity is tied to what this person says, then you can get him to do anything, because life, of course, is a thimbleful, and eternity is the ocean. But uh, I don't know. But that's part of why I think people follow it once they've decided the person has some sort of godly authority in their speech.
1: Absolutely, and again, uh, that overlaps with uh, the religious extremism that I've dealt with in, in terrorism. Um, but also, I think another factor is the, is what you might call the, the love bombing. So, if you have a new recruit, you often they they may be a little bit uh, you know disaffected. Their life may not be going so well. They may be isolated from family and friends, and you you give them the love bombing. You make them feel like they're the the most wonderful person in the world, and that suddenly being part of this cult is you know is a whole new life. And uh, plenty of examples of that.
2: Robert and I interviewed a man in this studio where we're sitting, who was a, had been a member many years ago of a white supremacist organization that, um, had some very strange cataclysmic, uh, apocalyptic, apocalyptic uh, prophecies and plans that they were going to cause this great race war in the United States and so forth. But this was a, an inarticulate man. We interviewed him. He's, a little older now, but uh, bright enough. And they convinced him to get a briefcase bomb and walk into a homosexual church and set it off. And he walked into the church. He went in. He sat and listened to part of the uh, sermon and was prepared to set it off. But he looked around. What did he tell us, Robert? He looked around and saw the people. They looked they look just like me. <laughs> he, yeah. thank God, a spark of empathy and identification with the victims came into play. And just like that, he didn't do it. But later, this cult was in a massive
0: standoff, one of the first big right. ones with about 300 law enforcement agents, including the FBI. The, the cult was so armed to the teeth, people had said they were the best SWAT team in America. <laughs> it's pretty scary stuff. But, he, it, but he, has, he has redeemed himself. He's written a book. He's a Christian minister now, and he preaches against this.
1: Right. It's good to hear that someone turn it around. I mean, we, yeah, you're reminding me of a, of a well-known London case, um, David Copeland, who, who was a fringe member of a white supremacist group and he acting alone he uh he left nail bombs around london including in a in a um, a well-known um gay hub in london in london Soho and he um, he left a nail bomb and, and tragically uh, uh a young woman uh died in that attack she was there with her partner but yeah white white supremacist Organizations are on the rise, and in the U.K., we have seen an increase in that recently.
2: I have a question about the rest of us for a moment, assuming the rest of us are different than those we've been speaking of. This uh, field, genre, really, (laughs) now in, in entertainment, has everyone captivated. Why do you think that we, as a society in the U.S. and in the U.K., why do we all know about Jack the Ripper? Why are we fascinated about Jack the Ripper and murderers? Why do, why do we find that so fascinating, do you suppose? And why is it mostly women that find it so fascinating?
1: (laughs) Yes, absolutely. I'm I'm told that, um, you know, many of my, my readers are are women. As you say, true crime readers are predominantly high proportion of women. Um, that's a really great question. I mean, I would say that it goes back. So, you know, uh, Charles Dickens era there were pamphlets distributed about famous cases and uh, so it's a, it's a, it's a human fascination perhaps it's a fascination with the other maybe it makes us feel a bit safer in our own lives to to look at the extremes of uh, humanity and what other people can do and um, combination of fascination and maybe you know reassurance that we're not like that i, I don't have a, a glib answer you know it's it's uh, That's a, i mean I the explosion like- of
0: Right. Yes, yeah. well, it was called Penny Dreadfuls" back in that era. I mean they right, you know for a penny, yep, and they were so popular
2: still in today, which it's now it's on t v That's a great description i, I think mm-hmm. that's right about uh yeah. f- fascination but feeling safe, I think to some degree, um the Native Americans have a expression they call it counting coup uh in other words, getting near something without doing it. So perhaps to say, "Wow, that, that is horrible." I'm glad that's, I'm I'm glad that's not me. I'm glad I wasn't the victim, but now I know a little more about it, and I see uh, maybe even how to stay away from it. Robert and I are just determined in our work uh, to have some to not just talk about gore, which is what so many, frankly, do. But to learn from it, uh, to learn how to um, be more observant, uh, not paranoid, of course, but to so that people in in situations uh, can think through maybe a little bit how a criminal would think and to not be vulnerable, to not put yourself at risk. Uh, we had a homicide investigator with us a few weeks ago that went through uh, those ideas, how to not become a victim, mm-hmm. but perhaps, like you said, uh, feel safe by reading it in a book in your safe home, but yet you see what can happen. I don't know. That's a, that's a. I think that's as good an answer that you gave as I've heard. And, and from what your lengthy career studies here,
0: is there any advice you can offer up to people?
1: Gosh, that's a, that's a good point. Well, um, I did say something about that in the book. Like in relationships, try and avoid controlling, narcissistic, uh, you know, venge, vengeful partners. Um, I talk about, yeah, um, spotting the warning signs in, for example, harassment, stalking. So, you know, around half um, of harassment cases are what we call rejected format intimates. And so if you dump, someone, and they start phoning you sending you unwanted gifts, you know, pleading with you, if that runs for a couple of weeks, maybe as long as four weeks, that's not so bad. If that continues beyond four weeks, the research shows that um, that's likely to run for six months or more. And if they enter your property, um, or assault you, then that's a big warning sign that this could escalate to a homicide even in a, you know, a professional person, uh, those with a, uh, again, narcissistic personality, they can't cope with rejection, they long, they long for uh, reunite, you, you know, they, they long to get they want to get their love back, but they're angry combination of the two. So I think in relationships, think about harassment, obviously, I mean, predatory sexual homicides, abductions are incredibly rare. I mean, we had one in the UK recently, but obviously, um, fairly uh, you know, standard precautions about being out at night, isolated areas. But, you know, those events are really rare. I think, I think awareness of um, relationship violence risk issues is a big one for me. Well, we've... Um
0: done a story about a woman who, and it was a, this was a sensational case back in the 1950s that murdered her eight and nine year old sons and then dismembered them to hide their body parts. Very narcissistic, uh, detached when she confessed, uh, about them. And then lo and behold, uh, <laughs> they let her out on parole. T- talk to us about the women who murder their children because we do see a lot of that and we see all different kind of categories of it can you walk us through those
1: i can indeed um can i just ask a question about that case i mean was there any issue with her partner was there uh, you know was yes. there something like her a...
0: yes so um uh, her partner oh, we'll just go back in time uh her partner it was in the Air Force, World War II. She worked in a bomber plant. Uh, later, uh, he goes AWL, right as the war is ending, absent without leave. Uh, eventually, FBI agents find him, and it was really it was a serious crime back then. And she gets in a gunfight, gun battle with the FBI agents. Somehow, they don't arrest her. They take him back to prison. Uh, he had already um, had earlier criminal problems. And then uh, they knock around and they end up in Texas. And um, he gets picked up for a four-year-old trafficking in stolen cars across state lines and is sent to the federal penitentiary. So while he's in the penitentiary, she does this. She claims that he's been writing letters and he blames her for the problems. And that's what she claims in her confession. Uh, She also claimed that she gave the boys sleeping pills, which was not true. She had actually had bludgeoned them to death. But the dismember of, of them in a bathtub, well, first, first she tried to dissolve them with lye and lime, and it didn't work. But, you know, in her confession, you know, she's talking about she really got tired trying to cut their bodies up, and so she went and had a glass of buttermilk and laid down and turned on the radio and just rested you know, and went to sleep for the, and then took a sleeping pill.
1: Wow. Um, Well, that's really interesting. He he was the father of the children, I I presume. Is that right? Yes, Um, yes, right. Yeah, okay.
0: She also said that she had planned to also kill herself and uh, commit suicide at the same time. But then later she said, I didn't go through with my own because it would have been disgraceful.
1: What a case. I mean, I'm, I'm glad I asked you that question because, you know, in my, well, that there is a well-established typology that's been written about by uh, Phil Resnick, Francis uh, forensic psychiatrist in the U.S., and uh, um, another author in, in the U.K. But um, we can divide these types of killings, and we, what we've been talking about, I think, is, is a very extreme variant of what we call the Medea syndrome. This is where um, it comes from a classical Greek uh, story about a woman who was rejected by her, by her high-standing partner, Jason, and um, she killed the two babies basically as revenge for the loss in social status. So there can be revenge on the children because of a separation, or it can be any, any issue with a relationship between the, the, um, the mother and a significant other, whether it's the father or maybe a new man comes on the scene that doesn't really want the kids. Um, or again I, I'm, I'm wondering about your case and whether in some way she was perhaps she, there, was a, there was an element of revenge against the, you know her, her partner who was in prison who'd let her down so much. Uh, but obviously dismemberment is is very unusual. So Medea syndrome um, revenge killings issues with the, the mother and their partner. Then we have obviously psychotic infanticides, tragically, women who develop a postpartum psychosis. Um, and I, I, I I've i seen quite a few of these cases and, uh, you know, one woman who believed that her child was Satan, the Antichrist and, uh, you know, dismembered the child. For her, the child was a demon. And um, those are the awful cases. And then we have, I mean, mercy killings of severely disabled children. We had a, a middle class stable woman who had two very severely disabled boys and it was a constant round the clock um operation dealing with all the medical problems and she eventually smothered them um we have the killings to eliminate an unwanted child these are typically very young babies what we call a neonatocide where the child may be killed within a few hours of birth um and then of course those parents who were already committing uh, physical abuse and neglect on their child and that can escalate from injury repeated non-accidental injury all the way to all the way to to homicide. I I describe a couple of those cases in my book. So there is a, again, a a recognizable typology. And and tragically, these cases do recur year on year.
2: You know what I, again, like about your, the way you think about this is you don't, you you know, people want to organize things. Uh, We can look at a cloud and we want to see it as a, you know, we, we want to want to bring order to things, even something as terrible as murder. So, you're you're quite willing to categorize, which we need to do, but yet you also see, it seems to me, the unique individuality in any given case, and how it, while it may be a part of a category, it stands alone in some respects. Is that is that right? Uh, seems like the way you see Absolutely. it. It's very, it's wonderful, actually, in in terms of what we see sometimes.
1: Absolutely, each case is different. Um, we can make a, a formulation you know what what were the the antecedents to this um, what happened in the life of this perpetrator what was their relation to the victim what was going on between the two of them as it gets closer to to the offense what were the short term factors whether it was an argument rage or whether it was planned was there substance misuse involved what's the crime scene show us the post offense behavior so every case is is individual but I mean, I I, I just did a case. um, And the jury is out. So I won't give away any details. Um, Although we have quite strict uh, juries that kind of sequestered from uh, well, there's a there's a a suppression of press reporting. But this was in broad terms, a, a man had gone up to an elderly person in the community, and had committed a random killing with them. And I as soon as I got the referral, I, I, you know, in my mind, this was, uh, in my mind, this was a psychotic homicide. Um, And uh, I shouldn't say anymore, because as I say, the jury's out, but um, subdubacy. But you know, sometimes I, you know, I get a referral in and and, and just from the basic scenario, you you got an idea. I mean, another example would be men who kill their mothers, you know, if I get a case of we call it matricide, then um, Amongst those who kill their mothers, there is a six-fold increase in serious mental illness, psychosis. So, you know, it's um, each case is different, but you get a sense uh, from some of the features of the case of how they might broadly fit into these uh, these categories.
2: In
0: the two cases we talked about, the woman who killed her children, and then Kenneth McDuff, the serial killer, you know, both were sentenced to life by juries. Actually, McDuff first time, he was sentenced to... Uh, Execution in the electric chair, and then his sentence was commuted to life, and the death penalty was struck down. But in the United States, decisions are made to release inmates, convicts, violent or not, by parole boards. They're typically appointed politically by a governor, uh, it's a political appointment. There are really no requirements to, that you're a forensic psychiatrist or have any experience, and they kind of just <clears throat> You know, kind of do it on a hunch and a feeling, and th- so thus we end up with a lot of bad, violent people being let out and recommitting crimes. Is there, a, is there a better approach?
1: Yes, I mean, no approach is perfect, and the key thing is that risk assessment of repeat violence is notoriously difficult. Um, you know, we, our, our prediction is 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 not is not as accurate as we would like. I mean, in the UK, a parole board has is chaired by a judge who will have um, experience, obviously, of criminal cases, and there is a either forensic psychologist or forensic psychiatrist on the panel, and a lay person, typically a social worker, and um, at least you know you have they have professional experience, and also there will usually be reports prepared for the board, typically again forensic psychiatry psychology reports and risk assessments. So this will involve, uh, you know, a detailed review of the case file, rating scales like the psychopathy checklist, and um, an attempt at a risk assessment. So I, I think that's potentially a better way. But things go wrong. We had a famous case here where an independent forensic psychologist said that a man who was a multiple rapist, taxi driver, he denied his offences, and she. She did a report saying, well, the research shows that it doesn't matter if you deny your offense or not, it doesn't affect risk. And the decision was made to release. And it caused an absolute outcry because some of his victims had not had their cases heard in court, you know, there was a like a sample of cases tried. And that, you know, the furor over that case led to the resignation of the chief of the parole board of the UK. So it, it gets political, of course. Um, But I think it helps to have professional people with experience in the field. Uh, But you can't avoid avoid – there's always going to be a political element to the release of a high-profile person.
2: And that's – I think we're missing here the forensic psychiatry. Uh, It it should be done. It should be – we should have a risk assessment. Each state is different, of course. So we have 50 or 51, including the District of Columbia, 51 different standards just in state courts. It's just not consistent. Um, would you take another question from far and left field, as we say?
1: Happy to. I'll okay. do my best to Here answer. Here it comes.
2: So I, was, I, was, I took some solace uh, for many years thinking that um, at least it's just the humans as far as we know, that could murder with some premeditation. And the animal kingdom does it to eat or to you know, to have seniority over a pack. And then I saw a program <laughs> about a, a group of chimpanzees who plotted the murder of a female chimpanzee who, for different reasons, uh, just didn't fit in. And, and you know, again, I'm getting this off of a documentary, and it may not be accurate, but I wonder from that how deeply sown uh, the chance to kill may be killing uh, for just sort of the sake of killing uh, to some degree. Uh, that's a weird question, but I had to ask you because I love your opinions on things. You, what do <laughs> well, you, you think about what, that? When
1: you start- <laughs> When you started asking that question, I knew you were heading for chimpanzees. Uh, because <laughs> at
2: least it wasn't barracuda <laughs> or something.
1: <clears throat> no, it, it is recognised. In fact, um, in when I was when I was training as a psychiatrist, doing my board exam, one of the questions about was about uh, you know true or false multiple choice question, and, and one of the one of the items was: Do chimpanzees are chimpanzees known to hunt and kill uh, other members of the group? And at the time i didn 't know it, and I answered that question wrong, and then I, I I discovered as as the facts that you've just described well, how about this for a theory um you know humans are social animals, and obviously our primate' ancestors I mean the chimpanzees are a different branch of the family, but you know they 're probably one of the closest to us, along with the gorillas we're an intensely social animal, and you can see that the way um a baby uh, interacts with. The child within the, you know, with the with the parents, the mother in the first few weeks of life, you know, fixing gaze, uh, engaging facial expressions, and you know, once you have a social group, then of course you have uh, rivalries, you have uh, relationships, coupling, um, and that can give rise to conflict. And then, of course, once there's conflict, you may have aggression, and then that can escalate to uh, to violence. And with a developed you know the primate being being the primate brain being so much more developed than mammalian brain then you have the ability to plan and consider and um, and and to make a rational judgment i mean that's an off the cuff theory but should that make us of, feel
2: should that make us feel better or worse about ourselves or or is it not related
1: <laughs> well i mean maybe it makes us feel a little bit better because you know it, the aggression is, you know, it, it 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 is a trait of human social life, and we can do all sorts of things to try and ameliorate it, try and look at the development of children and try and avoid uh, young people developing into violent adults. But it is, you know, it is a eternal feature of human society, as you said, 400,000 plus homicides a year, uh, best estimate. Um, and, um, you know, th- there are things you can do to reduce it. But if it, if it's If it's a fundamental part of human experience, then, you know, at least, at least we can understand it a bit more. And maybe that makes us feel a little bit better about how it happened.
0: You know, one of the questions we always get, particularly about the serial killers and Bill and I have looked them in eye to eye is that, is it nature or nurture? Because I've got to tell you, in the case of McDuff, his mother, who was known as the pistol packing mama wow those was the meanest lady we have ever met in our life and you have to wonder if the if the apple didn't drop far from the tree
1: <laughs> yes well um i got a chapter on treatment and i address these issues in some detail because you know if we understand what the cause of someone going on to commit homicide then maybe we can intervene and, and and stop this i'm going to go with mostly nurture Um, If you look at, for example, domestic violence, homicides, uh, gang-related violence, typically these, again, mostly young men, have poor relationships with parents. They have delegated parents. They're passed around uh, foster homes, group homes. They get involved in uh, substance misuse early. Their education's broken up. Um, However, there is a small group, like I said, of callous, unemotional children and this appears to be more heritable, so a very small group um, of people who go on to become psychopaths uh, are born with these traits. But again, you know what shapes them. If they're in a happy family home, maybe they go on to become a, a corporate uh, raider, run a Ponzi scheme. But if they have uh, abusive parents, disrupted childhood. Uh, then then you're looking at the makings of someone who could become a psychopath and head on to become a, a serial killer. So for serial killers, you're probably looking at both. But for the average murderer, I would go with nurture. Yes, we do. Um, there, there are um, abnormalities in the function of the amygdala. And, um, I mean, interestingly, the, um, interestingly, there's been research also on uh, facial recognition, you know, recognition of facial expressions that are, uh, that are disordered in, in those with psychopathy. Famously, there's one study where a psychopath is being presented with a face of somebody showing fear And he couldn't identify the emotion. And he said, well, I'm not sure how you describe that, but that's what somebody looks like just before I stab them. Uh, Mm -hmm. So uh, impaired facial recognition and, uh, yes, uh, amygdala in terms of regulating aggression and so forth.
0: And I take it that the uh, psychopath, particularly the serial killer, they don't know fear. They don't feel fear themselves.
1: No, uh, typically not, or certainly reduced. Um, re, you know, reduced uh, response to uh, fearful situations. So typically, again, in, in childhood, these callous, unemotional children, they uh, they will not fear violence from other kids, but they uh, may get pleasure in um, in perpetrating violence on others around them.
0: So, kind of in wrapping up here, I, I am curious: what was there about? forensic psychiatry and this you you pursued it that you find it interesting you get up and do it every day
1: wow i mean i would say at the end of the day the interface between a medical discipline and all the research and the clinical work that goes with that and the legal system is just too interesting to to pass up um again i talk about my story in my book but uh, as a young uh, emergency room resident uh, we had all kinds of weird cases coming in. There was one man who came in, he'd, he'd hammered a nail into his head. A uh, six-inch builder's nail right through the middle of his brain. And, of course, the surgeons wanted to know, how do we get this out safely? We're going to have to you know, cut his skull open. He survived. And I was curious. Well, why would you do that? You know, uh, of course, the surgery is crucial. I take my hat off to people who go into surgical career. But I want to know why. Why would you do this? And uh, of course, he was suffering from a psychosis, delusions about people controlling his brain, and he was having a first onset psychosis. And I moved into psychiatry, and as I say, I came across my first homicide case really early on, and. Um, it resonated with a story from my family which is something i explore and that i think that took me down the forensic route trying to understand these extremes of human behavior
2: what what you do and what we at least endeavor to
1: do but what you clearly do is you don't bring uh, the
2: reader into gore or Terror or horror, um, they can observe that, but you bring them the chance for understanding. And again, in this whole genre of this day we live in, where this true crime phase is underway, where people are so interested in it, if a viewer or reader or listener can gain an understanding uh, to be a better person themselves, uh, of course, to be more aware of those around them, those they may deal with, they, now you're doing something. And I think that's what you've done. And I, I mean, just can't tell you how much we appreciate you sharing with us uh, your thoughts today, but just excellent. Thank you.
1: Well, um, I'm so pleased to be invited. I, uh, As I say, I've started listening to your podcast, so I'm going to work my way through the episode. Um, really, really pleased to be invited. And thank you for your kind comments about my book.
0: Well, the book, again, for our listeners, is The Mind of a Murderer by Dr. Richard Taylor, available on Amazon and anywhere online. It is an excellent book for it's based in science and your experience. So we want to thank you for joining us on this episode of True Crime Reporter Confidential. And uh, we hope to have you back.
1: Thank you so much. I'd be very happy to.
0: Thank you. We want to be your favorite true crime podcast, so please recommend us to your friends and leave a review wherever you listen. If you want to receive updates and bonus interviews, join our true crime community at truecrimereporter.com. If you have suggestions or know of a case that we should look into, email us at fan at truecrimereporter.com. This podcast is a trademarked and copyrighted news organization based in Dallas, Texas. You can read more about our news team at truecrimereporter.com. Thanks for listening to our Journey into Darkness.